0: Telling the story. Go to Washington and make a tour of the memorials and you'll make a fascinating discovery. Begin at the Lincoln Memorial with the giant statue of the man who braved civil war and presided over the ending of slavery. On one side of that memorial, you'll see the Gettysburg Address, that masterpiece of brevity with its invocation of a new birth of freedom. And on the other side, the great second inaugural with its message of healing with malice toward none with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Then walk down the Potomac Basin and you see the Martin Luther King Memorial with its 16 quotes from the great fighter for civil rights. Among them his 1963 statement, Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And giving its name to the monument as a whole, a sentence from The I have a dream speech, out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. Keep going along the tree-lined avenue bordering the water and you arrive at the Roosevelt Memorial. Constructed as a series of six spaces, one for each decade of his public career, each with a passage from one of the defining speeches of the time. Most famously, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And lastly, bordering the basin at its southern edge is a Greek temple dedicated to the author of the American Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson. Around the dome are the words he wrote to Benjamin Rush. I've sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. And defining the circular space are four parades, each with lengthy quotations from Jefferson's writings, among them one from the Declaration itself. Each of these four monuments, in other words, is built around a text and it tells a story, or built around texts and each tells a story. Now go to London and walk around the monuments, especially those in Parliament Square. The memorial to David Lloyd George contains three words, David Lloyd George. The one to Nelson Mandela has two, Nelson Mandela, and the one to Sir Winston Churchill, just one word, Churchill. Now, Winston Churchill was a man of words, in his early life a journalist, later a historian, author of almost 50 books, and the winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. He was a man who delivered as many speeches and coined as many unforgettable sentences as Jefferson or Lincoln Roosevelt or Martin Luther King, but not one of his utterances is engraved on the plinth beneath his statue. He is memorialized only by his name. Why the difference? The reason is that Britain and the United States have a quite different political and moral culture. England is, or was until recently, a tradition-based society. In such societies things are as they are because that's how they were since time immemorial. It's unnecessary to ask why. Those who belong know. Those who need to ask show that they don't belong. American society is different because from the Pilgrim Fathers onward it was based on the concept of covenant as set out in Tanakh especially in and Devarim, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. The early settlers were Puritans in the Calvinist tradition. The closest Christianity ever came to basing its politics on the Hebrew Bible. Covenantal societies are not based on tradition. The Puritans, like the Israelites 3,000 years earlier, were revolutionaries, attempting to create a new type of society, one unlike Egypt, or in the case of America, one unlike, England. Michael Walzer called his book on the politics of the 17th century Puritans the revolution of the saints. They were trying to overthrow the tradition that gave absolute power to kings and that maintained established hierarchies of class. Covenantal societies always represent a conscious new beginning by a group of people dedicated to an ideal. The story of the founders, the journeys they made, the obstacles they had to overcome, and the vision that drove them are essential elements of a covenantal culture. And telling the story and retelling it and handing it on to one's children and dedicating oneself to continuing the work that earlier generations began are fundamental to such a society. A covenanted nation is not simply there because it's there, It's there to fulfill a moral vision. That's what led G.K. Chesterton to call the United States a nation with the soul of a church, the only nation in the world founded on a creed. I'm afraid Chesterton's anti-Semitism prevented him from crediting the true source of America's political philosophy, namely the Hebrew Bible. But be that as it may, the history of storytelling as an essential part of moral and political education begins in this week's parasha it's quite extraordinary how on the brink of the exodus Moses three times turns to the future and the duty of parents to educate their children about the story that was shortly to unfold when your children ask you in the future what is this service to you you shall answer it's a Pesach to the Lord On on that day you shall tell your child, it's because of this that God acted for me when I leave to Egypt. When your child later says, what is this? You shall answer him with a show of power. God brought us out of Egypt, the place of slavery. This is extraordinary. The Israelites hadn't yet emerged into the dazzling light of freedom. There were still slaves. There were still in Egypt. Yet already Moses is directing their minds to the far horizon of the future in giving them the responsibility of passing on their story to succeeding generations it's as if Moses was saying forget where you came from and why and eventually you'll lose your identity your continuity and your raison d'etre you will come to think of yourself as the mere member of a nation among nations one ethnicity among many forget the story of freedom and you'll eventually lose freedom itself rarely indeed Our philosophers have philosophers written about the importance of storytelling for the moral life. Yet that is how we become the people we are. The great exception among modern philosophers has been Alastair MacIntyre, who wrote in his classic book, After Virtue, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? Deprive children of stories, he says, and you leave them anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words no one understood this more clearly than Moses because he knew that without a specific identity, without your story the story of your people it's almost impossible not to lapse into whatever is the current idolatry of the age, rationalism, idealism, nationalism, fascism, communism, postmodernism you name it, individualism, hedonism, or consumerism, to name only the most recent. The alternative, a society based on tradition alone, where you just do what everyone else has always done, crumbles. As soon as respect for tradition dies, which it always does, at some stage or other. Identity, which is always particular, is based on story. The narrative that links me to the past, guides me in the present, and places on me responsibility for the future. And no story, at least in the West, was more influential than that of the Exodus, the memory that the supreme power intervened in history to liberate the supremely powerless. Together with the covenant that followed whereby the Israelites bound themselves to God in a promise to create a society that would be the opposite of Egypt, where people were respected as the image of God, where one day in seven all hierarchies of power were suspended and where dignity and justice were accessible to all. We never quite reached that ideal state, but we never ceased to travel toward it and believe it was there at journey's end. The BBC's political correspondent Andrew Marr once wrote the Jews have always had stories for the rest of us. Elie Wiesel once said, God created man because God loves stories. What other cultures have done through systems, Jews have done through stories. And in Judaism, the stories aren't engraved in stone on memorials. Magnificent though that is, they're told at home, around the table, from parents to children, as the gift of the past to the future. That's how storytelling in Judaism was devolved, democratized, and domesticated. Only the most basic elements of morality are universal, justice, liberty, which tend to mean different things to different people in different places and times. But if we want our children and our society to be moral, we need a collective story that tells us where we came from and what our task is in the world. The story of the Exodus, especially as told on Pesach at the Seydit table, is always the same yet ever-changing, in an almost infinite set of variations on a single set of themes that we all internalize in ways that are unique to us, yet we all share as members of the same historically extended community. There are stories that ennoble and others that stultify, leaving us prisoners of ancient grievances or impossible ambitions. The Jewish story is, in its way, the oldest of all, yet ever young, and we're each part of it. It tells us who we are and who our ancestors hoped we would be. Storytelling is the great vehicle of moral education. It was the terror's insight that a story. That a people who told their children the story of freedom and its responsibilities would stay free for as long as humankind lives and breathes and hopes.